Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,224 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing the messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is the third of three Easter-related messages titled, The Death of Death. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. This morning, all right. Thank you for being here, everyone. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, last week, we continued our resurrection messages with a message titled, When the Stones Burst into Cheers. It was taken from Luke chapter 19, verses 35 through 42. And we learned three essential points last week. First one was, God is worthy of loud and joyful praise. Second, our praise should be focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And third, God must and will be praised through Jesus Christ. But on this Easter morning, this resurrection day, our focus is on the death of death. Because the resurrection is real. And it changes everything in the entire world. And throughout the message, we're going to look at the last few verses of Matthew chapter 27, and then most of Matthew chapter 28. We'll read it as we go through the message, but it's found on page 1549 and 1550 of your pew Bibles. Now, there are moments in time in our lives when suddenly something happens and it, everything changes in our lives. There are so many examples, especially of us who are getting a little older in life, of things that happened throughout our lives that just changed our entire life. And I could think of several things, but I decided to pull, pick a personal story that impacted our lives. On Easter weekend in 2017, we received the news that Hazel had leukemia. <clears throat> when Elizabeth called me, I was out in the yard planting saplings with Barney, who was down for the weekend helping me. Paula was on her way to visit some friends in North Carolina. So when I called her, she exited off the first exit in North Carolina, turned right around and headed back. All of our lives were turned upside down that weekend. For the next two and a half years, it was reoccurring appointments, doctor visits, treatments, hospital stays, continual tears and prayers. By God's grace, Hazel came through it all with flying colors. By the wisdom that the doctors gave, had, that God granted them, today she's a healthy, feisty, nearly eight-year-old flaming redhead. She's a darling. And while her semi-annual checkups have been very positive over these past three years, I can't say that our hearts don't skip a beat or two every time she gets a fever or a cough. And I suspect it'll be that way for many years because everything changed on Easter weekend six years ago when all of a sudden, in a moment, things change our lives and they'll never be the same from that point on. It's a powerful reality. But the same happened a little over 2,000 years ago, but the impact not only changed our lives, but it changed the lives of everyone for all of time from that point on. 
you see that the fact that the tomb was empty, that it truly changes everything. Not only for us as individuals, but for us who we are, how we'll live, and why we live the way that we live. But through this hall, and through this scenario over 2,000 years ago, we see that God's work cannot be stopped. Jesus, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they had issues with each other. They're worse than the Democrats and the Republicans in our nation today, who are always at each other's throat. They just don't get along. Jesus had offended the chief priests and the Pharisees because he undermined their authority. He was subversive to their power, and they didn't want to lose their power. To use the modern phrase, they thought Jesus was a royal pain, and then you know what. Everything about his ministry bothered them. The fact that Jesus associated with tax collectors, with immoral harlots, with the uneducated, with the ordinary people of the day, they flocked to Jesus, and this bothered those religious people. Those people were blemishes on society. And he didn't think a rabbi should have anything to do with those people. So they were tired of Jesus. And now that they had finally crucified him, they wanted this whole Jesus thing to be over. They remembered that while he was still alive, he said that he would be resurrected from the grave. So they make a plan and they go to Pilate with their plan. We have to, to, to safeguard what he said. Now, interestingly, the Jewish priests were not allowed to place their own palace guards at the tomb. They were, had been under the Roman rule for decades now. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse, or 27, verses 62 through 66, they come up with this plan. It says, the next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and the Pharisees went to see Pilate. Now, I found this really interesting. They went to see Pilate on the Sabbath. And one of their biggest beasts with Jesus was, you're healing people on the Sabbath, or you're helping people on the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath. And yet, these chief priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate on the Sabbath to concoct their plan. And then we go on in verse 63. They told him, Sir, we remember what this deceiver once said when he was still alive. After three days, I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until that third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and telling everyone that he was raised from the dead. If this happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. Pilate replied, take the guards and secure it the best you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted guards to protect it. What this is teaching us, though, is you can't stop the work of God. The chief priests and the Pharisees wanted to stop Jesus from his disciples stealing the body and then saying he was resurrected from the grave. And they thought, we're going to make a plan. And there's no way this nonsense of Jesus will continue after this. But we, individually, must also remember that we can't stop the work of God in our lives. Because I think if we're all be honest with ourselves, there's times in our lives where we don't want to follow what God wants for us. Things are going on, circumstances in our lives, situations where God wants to bear fruit in our lives. And we're putting it, in a way, we're putting our proverbial foot down and saying, mm -mm, Lord, no way. You're not going to do that in my life. And that's why one of the most common themes in the scripture is the idea of surrender and trusting. 
Now, many of us know what it's like to resist God and what he's doing in our life. Like those Pharisees and those chief priests, we say, God, this is unacceptable in my plans. For the Pharisees and the chief priests, Jesus was unacceptable in the plans that they had. So they were trying to do everything to stop what God was trying to do. The Pharisees say to Pilate, listen, the first deception that Jesus told the people was that he was the Messiah. We don't believe that he was the Messiah, but you know what would be worse? If the disciples say that he was resurrected from the grave, that would be a huge problem for us. And for you, Pilate, you're the one that condemned him to death. So can you take care of this, Pilate? Notice what Pilate says. Yes, take the guards. Secure it the best you can. So they sealed the tomb and they posted guards to protect it. Now this would have been at least four guards protecting this tomb because they were usually in a regiment of 16 that took shifts. So four guards at a time went around this tomb to make sure that no one came close to take the body and then claim that it was resurrected. In these verses, we realize that the tomb, that there were three obstacles to prevent Jesus from being resurrected that day. First, there was a huge stone rolled across the door. And unlike today where we go to a graveyard and we bury somebody in a graveyard six feet deep, this was a massive cave with a massive rock in front of the door. It was a physical barrier, a physical object, uh, obstruction, a physical rock, a giant rock blocking the resurrection of Jesus. Now, second, they sealed that tomb. The idea of sealing showed Pilate's political authority, saying, no one can break the seal of Pilate without his authority. So we have a huge rock. We have the seal around it, sealing the door. So that day, the politics ensured that Jesus would not be coming out of that tomb. And third, there was a guards, at least four of them, set up around that tomb. So not only were there physical and political obstacles, now there's a good old-fashioned personal obstacle. The best of the Roman guards were standing watch. And this arrangement was a perfect setup for Resurrection Sunday. They were trying to stop what God was doing, his work, the work of God. In Matthew chapter 28, we see those obstacles had no bearing on God's work. The arrangement sets forth this classic Resurrection's account in the simplest way we say it is, he is risen. Although there are obstacles and big ones, the huge stone, the seal of Pilate, the Roman guards, nothing will stop the will of God. And all we can say to that is, he is risen. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, it says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, which was either Mary, the mother of James, or possibly Lazarus' sister, they went to the tomb. John's Gospel tells us that they brought anointing spices. They weren't there to see a resurrected Savior. They were coming to anoint the body of a dead one. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, if you remember our study in John, they hastily prepared the body Friday evening, right before Sabbath started, and rushed him into the tomb so they didn't do a complete burial garb. So these women were not coming to see a risen Savior. They were coming to see, to continue that preparation of Jesus' body, Jesus' dead body. The two show up, and in verse 2, things got real. It says in verse 2, there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, he rolled the stone away, 
breaking the seal, and he sat down on top of that stone. Have you ever been in an earthquake? The only thing I've ever felt is a few tremors that we've had in the Mid-Ohio Valley over the years. Not much. But from my understanding, when you're in a bad earthquake and the building starts shaking and you're frozen because you don't know what to do, you don't know where to run, you don't know what to do to be safe. So you stand there frozen in place, not knowing what to do. But now, not only was there an earthquake, there was also an angel at the tomb. He rolls the stone away, breaking the seal. And in verse 3 it says, His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. And he sits down on top of the stone. It's a massive stone. In verse 4 it says, The guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. They were frozen. They didn't know what to do, where to run, what to say, what to, how to protect the body in that tomb. And yet... By that time, there was no body in the tomb. They just did not realize it. But notice what the angel says to the women when they arrive. The angel said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. So Jesus has told the people that he would be resurrected from the grave. And yet, somehow, they just could not imagine it. They could not get it. But is that any different than many today that just can't grasp who Jesus is and that he did rise from the grave? It's just not possible for somebody to rise from the grave. Have you ever seen anyone rise out of the grave? I know I haven't. I'd be scared to death too, like these women were. But let me give you a scenario that might help more in our common vernacular. Do you like to watch crime dramas? I know I do. I really get into those dramas. And every time you see a scene in an emergency room, you know what's going to happen. There's a moment when somebody flatlines. All of a sudden, the heart stops beating. Then what do they do? The people in the emergency room move into action very quickly. And those of you that have been nurses know this procedure. They grab the ADs, those automated external defibrillators, and they shock that person's chest to get a heart to start beating again. When somebody's heart stops, they try to shock it back to life again. You guys believe that those AEDs will work? They've been proven over and over and over again that they do. And I know Ella and Delbert Schaefer believe that they work because they had an upfront and personal experience with that just this week, where they had to shock Ella's heart back into rhythm to get her to start her heart start beating and for her to breathe again. We all believe in AEDs because we've seen them work. We know that they're viable in most cases. But it's no different with God raising from the dead. It's the same thing. By God's grace, he allowed humanity to have the wisdom and knowledge to create AEDs so that we can shock somebody back to life. Do you think God didn't have the capability of bringing his own son back to life? He didn't need an AED. God, the creator of the universe, was able to bring him back. And you hear other objections in the Bible about miracles that happen. One that we get around Christmas time is, how can you believe in that virgin birth? Well, fortunately, we live 
in an age of technology where almost anything's possible. Think about an intro in vitro fertilization where you take an egg from a woman and some sperm from a man and put them in the test tube and then that can be planted back inside a woman even if she hasn't had any relationships with a man and she can be pregnant. We have seen miracles today. Is it any less hard to believe that God, the creator of the universe, the creator of life, to start a life and Mary, at Christmas time that we celebrate, he created humanity. It was nothing for him to create his only son, his one and only son, in that virgin that night. Resuscitation back to life is not as unusual anymore as it once was. Now, don't get me wrong, though. Jesus' resurrection was very unique. It was the one and only. That's what unique means. The one and only resuscitation and resurrection. Because everybody who was re resuscitated back to life, including Lazarus, who we learned about a couple weeks ago, he had been dead for four days. He should have been rotting. And yet Jesus brought his body back to life. But what happened to Lazarus later? He died. No one was there to save him and bring him back to life at that point. And no one has ever been brought to back to life except for Jesus to live, continue to live. The fact that Jesus resurrected from the grave should not be an intellectual hurdle for anyone. Why? Because it happens in our modern technology, but God allows human and given them the wisdom to do that. God, the creator of life, who knew life at first, who took a handful of soil and breathed life into it, is the creator and sustainer of life out of nothing. I want to ensure you that as Christians, we realize that Christianity is a movement would have never gotten off the ground if they had just produced the dead body. That's all it would have taken. When all this stuff was going on, if they would have found Jesus' dead body, it would have been over for them. All they had to see, say is, no, no, the body's right here. Look, here he is. And that's the thing that would have never gone. If that was the case, Christianity would have never gone anywhere. But they weren't able to produce a body, not a dead body at least. Why? because he wasn't there. The tomb was completely empty. The seal was broken. The stone was removed. He was risen, just like he said. But we have to come to realize as believers that we have more responsibility than just to come and see that we have an empty tomb today. As we back up to verse 6 again, he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Now, if that wasn't exciting enough for the, those ladies of Mary and Mary, and there a couple others probably were there, who came to the tomb and the angel said, then go quickly and tell the disciples, he is risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So this dual reality of why we gather each Sunday morning, do we gather just for fellowship, just for camaraderie? No, first we come to see, come and see, and fellowship, and praise God, and learn from his word. But then we are to go and tell the others of their good news. And too often we have a habit of saying, come to church, rather than saying, we come together as the church, so that we can have a profound experience 
The reality of that resurrection unified together makes our belief stronger than if we do it individually. And then we go and tell and show our generation the story of God. That's kingdom building. It's not good enough just to come and see. We must also go and tell. We come and see so that we can have that profound experience of that resurrected Christ. Once we have that experience, though, we must go and tell about God to the world. Gathering together as a church is only fulfilling if we simultaneously join the world and go and tell. I want to encourage you and challenge each of us, including myself. There's nothing more fulfilling than that profound experience that we gather together on a Sunday morning to fellowship, to encourage one another, to laugh, to cry with each other. But that's only completely fulfilling when then we go and spread that good news throughout the world. To build God's kingdom until we're to do that, until Christ returns to restore his global Eden. And that's where the stuff gets worked out in reality. Everything we learn about on Sunday, then we can tell others about on the other days of the week. And when we find yourself in the story of God, not only coming and seeing, but going and telling, then all of a sudden you get it. You realize the purpose for having church, the purpose for being the church. Oh, this is why we come together as the church. It's a family reunion. We scatter then throughout the world to tell and bless people in Jesus' name. How did the women respond at the tomb? Well, they were both terrified but overwhelmed with joy. They were fearful yet full of joy. In verses 8 through 10, it says, So when the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell the disciples, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. That must have been a shock. And they came and clasped his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go into Galilee. There they will see me. The presence of Jesus will change your fear into joy. Joy is not situational. Joy is not circumstantial. Joy is a disposition of the heart when we say, God, you are God, and I must trust you. Or a quote I saw this week from Oswald Chambers, it says, when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas when you do not fear God, you fear everything else. It's so true. Now, in our Western nations, we like to at least say and propagate that men and women are equal. I would say we've done some pretty good progress on that in the last 100 years, 200 years. Women are equally intelligent as men, and in most cases, more so. Women have the same skills, although they might be unique to each of those individual women. So there's a uniqueness, but men and women before our society should be, and certainly before God, are equal. But in Jesus' culture, that Roman culture, women were not even allowed to public testify, and certainly not allowed to testify in court. And I know that sounds sort of crazy and archaic in our world today, but crazy and ancient because we don't have that same values system as they did in the day of, of Christ. But in that day, they were not allowed to publicly testify, and yet, the story today tells us something different. Suppose you were telling the story about Jesus and his re the resurrected Messiah, and you want to run forth with validity in the Roman culture, that first uh, century Palestine, 
In that case, you don't have the women who are the ones that are testifying to the resurrection. They weren't even allowed to publicly testify or in court. And they were the ones who were the apostles to the apostles in this passage. The guys that God chose to walk with Jesus for those three years, they were nowhere to be found. They were hiding in a locked room. The women were there, and Jesus says, listen, go tell my boys that I am alive. Now, if you wanted to write the story, you would change, that would change the Roman Empire. You needed to take the women out of that story. You needed to put Peter and John and maybe James and Andrew in that story. But no, not in God's story. Mary Magdalene, the woman who had seven demons in her that was exercised by Jesus Christ, and she turned to him and followed him throughout those three years of his ministry, was one of the women. And the other Mary, we had a questionable reputation also. Think about how powerful that is. Christ changed the world. He did not disregard those who were lesser in society. He did not disregard those who the Pharisees and those royal priests looked down on in disdain. But if you wrote the, cult, the, the story in that culture, it's not the women sharing it, it would have to be the men, but we see here God changed that. Who were the apostles to the apostles? They were the women who says, he's resurrected from the grave. He is risen, come and see. And then Peter and John finally run to the tomb after much consternation. But with every good story like this, there's always a cover-up. A cover-up of those aren't really the facts. And we look at verses 11 through 15, the officials tried to create a cover-up. They don't believe, but we cannot believe in that cover-up. <clears throat> you can imagine Mary and that other Mary going to tell the apostles, He is risen! Come and see for yourself! But then those lowly guards that were guarding the tomb, they had to go to the chief priests and say, <clears throat> you won't believe what happened. Then they tell their story. There was this earthquake, and there was this crazy angel, and he was shining like white as snow, and he broke the seal and rolled the stone away. And, we, and then he sat down on it. We freaked out. And we looked in the tomb, the body's gone. And the officials responded, <clears throat> this is what we're going to do. We're going to pay you a large sum of hush money. And we want you to tell everyone that the disciples came while you were sleeping and took the body away. Now, I hope you realize how terrible of cover-up that was. It's worse than a grade schooler coming to his teacher and saying, my dog ate my homework. It's an impossibility. Because if it's true, not only one, but at least four of the soldiers had to be asleep at the same time. Not only that, the soldiers had to sleep through an earthquake, the stone being rolled away, the disciples stealing the body. This scenario would be like taking 10 sleeping pills, and you don't do that because you don't wake up after taking 10 sleeping pills. All of them had to sleep through all that mess. So even though they were sleeping and missed that whole thing, then they say they knew who did it? How absurd. I don't have enough faith to believe that. Not only did they miss the entire thing, they slept through it, even though the stone was moved, but then they knew who stole the body? It's just a cover-up, a blatant cover-up that was so easily disguised or shown that it was false. Besides that, if the Romans' guards had messed up that badly, they would have been executed. There would have been no question. 
Since Jesus conquered death, then we also have to deal with him. God created each one of us to deal with Jesus Christ. Its most crucial question in the world is, what have you done with Jesus? What's interesting about this question is that if Jesus says who he is, that the only proper response that we can have to Jesus is our absolute allegiance. Because straight up, if he conquered death, and he's the only one who did that, we must follow him. That's powerful. Jesus is the only teacher in history, the only philosopher, the only religious leader that is still alive today. All others have died. And I want to encourage you today that if any of you have doubts of whether you follow Jesus, now is the time to decide. To align your life with the giver and the sustainer of life. If he conquered the grave, we certainly want to join him. If he conquered our shame and our brokenness, we want to join him. I want to join him, and I have. It's the only logical place to be is with Jesus. And I know what happens when you say, yes, I will follow you, Jesus. We spent nine weeks in a series because I said, what does God want? God wants a human family. He wants us to be, have believing loyalty in him. God accepts us exactly the way we are. You know what's incredible about that? Is God knows who we are, and yet he loves us anyway. But he loves us so much, he doesn't want us to keep in our way that we are. He wants us to change. He wants us to follow him. He's changing all of us. Now, we'll never arrive to this level of perfection, but we all are in that process. We might be in different stages of that process, but we're all in that process of becoming more and more like Christ. It's just a matter if we're going to say, God, I'm willing to let you work and do what you want inside of me because it's impossible for me to change myself on the outside. I will let you in to move in and change my life from the inside out. God is not afraid of that. He knows where we've been. He knows where we'll be. He knows we won't always be faithful every single day, every single moment. But he loves us anyway. And he accepts us. He knows us to our core. And if we turn to Jesus, we'll find that he's already waiting for us, saying, just come. If you look at your bulletin insert on the side, it says the resurrection is proven at the top. That graphic image that says, he is not here, he is risen, just as he said. So near the end of those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension to heaven, he meets his disciples in Galilee. It says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told him to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some still doubted. We were going to close, as we're close today with the reality that Christ was not only seen by his disciples and the two Marys, at least, he was seen by a multitude. They go over to Galilee. Jesus reveals himself once again to them. They worshipped him, although some doubted. After this, Jesus, right before his ascension to heaven, he says in the Great Commission, verses 18 through 20, he says, go into all the world and make disciples. In all the world. And that's what we're to do. That's still our commission today. The Apostle Paul confirmed this in a snapshot of probably the best snapshot in the scripture of what happened during this week. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 9, I've listed there on the bulletin insert. It says, I passed on to you what is most important and what I had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, 
just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than four, 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive today, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I am the least of all apostles. In fact, I am not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. Did you hear what Paul said here? He says, look, not only the disciples or apostles saw him, but 500 people saw him at one time, and many of those people are still alive today. This is what we call, as the statement at the bottom says, this passage is what we call irrefutable eyewitness testimony. No one can refute this. That story that was made up was so flimsy when over 500 people saw Jesus Christ alive. The empty tomb is so important because Jesus, who did nothing wrong, conquered death. It was the death of death. Jesus murdered death, finally. You and I are mortal, but if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we become immortal. You and I have corruption in our hearts, but if we believe in Jesus, we take on his incorruption. In the passage that later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 57, if you look at the other side of your bullet and insert, the death of death, victory over death. And this passage here is then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, and that will happen in the last day when Christ returns to earth, we will be resurrected, whether dead or alive, and our bodies will be transformed to immortal bodies, like Christ had at his resurrection. It says, this scripture will be fulfilled. Oh, death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? Sin and death lose. It's over. In Romans chapter 8, verse 37, it says, No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Victory over death, that's what we have. It is a graphic that I displayed a couple weeks ago when we talked about Lazarus rising from the tomb. Jesus said at that point, I am the resurrection and the life. That's what Resurrection Sunday is all about. It's about victory that Jesus won by conquering the grave. All of us who ask, you and I, anyone that believes in his victory and trust in him, are saved. Then the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. And you learn to lean into that victory that Jesus provided for us in our lives. We are mortal today, but Christ provides our immortality. We do have corruption in our lives, but Christ provides incorruption, and he provides it as a free gift to us. So this Resurrection Sunday, let us consider that Christ has provided for us, and that is victory over death. The next Sunday, we're going to begin a new series. We'll begin an adventure through the book of Hebrews. It's a challenging book, but a very exciting book. And it proves that Christ is the prophet, the priest, and the king, ultimately fulfilling all the requirements of the Old Testament. And the first section next week will be about the Christ is superior in his person. And the next week's title will be The Last Word, Worthy of Worship. So I'd encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 14.
in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, that he did have victory over death, that we might have life eternal. We thank you for this time we can set aside each year called Easter or Resurrection Sunday, where we can celebrate Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. We can celebrate the new life that we have in him. As spring reminds us of the new life that's sprouting out everywhere, we have new life in Jesus Christ. Help it to spread out in our lives as we share with others the love that you shared with us, Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.